Well, man, it is good. I don't think I even introduced myself. I know that you've seen me a bunch already this morning. But again, my name is Trevor. I'm the lead pastor here. It is so good to be with you all this morning. If you have a Bible, would you open up to John chapter 18? Um, You know, preaching is a challenging thing, uh, and I don't know if you've ever done it, but it's a little tricky. But recently, I've just been sort of um, thinking about how the last thing that I think our church needs is just more of my own thoughts and opinions. Um, What we need most as God's people is God's word. Amen? Um, and so I say that just to say that as we're, as we're diving into John this morning, um, and we're going to pick up John, I'll talk about that in a second, I just, my prayer this week is that we would just hear from God, and that I would attempt to get out of the way as much as possible. Uh, if you have joined us as a church, let me give you a, a brief idea of where we're at. We, uh, last week, we did a two-part series, How to Read Your Bible. As a church, we are reading through the Bible together. There's a, a Bible reading plan you can grab at the Next Steps, Next Steps table before you leave. If you have already fe- are feeling behind, that's okay, right? The grace of God is for you. Um, pick up next week and start anew, but get in the rhythm of reading your Bible regularly and daily, right? The last thing you want to do is just to feel like, an overwhelming sense of guilt over failing to read God's word regularly that keeps you from reading God's word regularly. So join in with us again, grab that. Um, we, so we did two weeks on how to read your Bible, and then this week we are beginning uh, to go back into the Gospel of John. If you have been with us every week, and if you've been with us the last four years, you have heard us preach through every verse so far of the Gospel of John all the way up to John 18. And uh, I'm really excited because we will finish the Gospel of John together in the next 10 weeks as we walk through this great book and kind of the end of it together. As a church, the majority of our preaching is kind of verse by verse through books of the Bible. And uh, we've been working at John for four years, kind of taking breaks in between so that if you're with us for you know, not as much of a time you don't only hear from the Gospel of John. Um, But here we are uh, in John 18. The last time we were in John 17 was last year, and it sort of ended right around, um, right before Palm Sunday. So again, if you've got a Bible, John 18 is where I'd like to have you open up with us this morning. Um, uh, John is a, uh, a book that when you get to 18, I mean, everything slows down. We are um, at, a, at a place in the Gospel of John that you might call the Passion, right? Or you may have heard the Passion of the Christ. It tells the story of Christ's suffering. Um, someone once said, I forget who said this, but someone once said that um, the Gospels are all passions with long introductions, And uh, that's what John feels like, 17 chapters, all amazing, but kind of all leading to this moment. Um, I mean, it's an emergency. Uh, uh, John 18, um, where, where we are now turning the corner. In John 17, Jesus has already washed the disciples' feet. He has already um, had the Last Supper. He has already been, um, he's already resurrected Lazarus. He, has, he is now headed into the, the final moments of his life, and it will begin this morning with his arrest. And, uh, and the gospel, as you're reading the Passion, it always, uh, for many people, they're, 
They, they, they hear about this and they, they think about the passion of Jesus as maybe in the, the classical Greek sense of a, a tragedy. But in the classical Greek sense, the, what we're about to get into is a comedy. And by that, I don't mean it's funny. I mean that it's leading towards a glorious and beautiful and wonderfully happy ending. But it's going to be kind of moving into dark territory over the course of the next few weeks together as we're going to meditate on these last moments of Jesus's life. It also kind of be interesting for us as a church because one of the things we will do is uh, we'll run through the Gospel of John. It will take us to right up until Easter, and then we'll look at it kind of again from a different angle um, right around Easter time. So if you want to spend time with Jesus at, towards the end of his life, boy, do I have good news for you. That's where we'll be as a church over the course of the next few weeks. All right. Um, so John chapter 18, let's read the text, and then we will spend some time allowing God to speak to us through it. John chapter 18, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word he had spoken of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup? that the Father has given me? This is the text that we will be looking at together this morning. This morning I want to point out four things in the text about Christ that I hope you would see, that you'd cling to, that you'd remember, that you'd meditate on, that would strengthen your faith. His sovereignty, his identity, his security, and his Destiny. The text is about kind of this movement of these soldiers and leaders into this garden where Jesus is. And the text focuses once again on Christ and on who he is. And so this morning I want to unpack that a little bit for us. So I'll begin first with his sovereignty. Do, do you ever have these moments where, um, where your plan and God's plan just seem to not be on the same page? Right, like you, you, 
if you were writing your own story, you would have made a left where, like, long time ago, and now you are kind of looking at your options in front of you, and you're just thinking to yourself, this, I didn't, I didn't want to be here in this situation, at this time, at this place, having to make this decision. Lord, like, I, I, this is not, like, I, I'm struggling to believe that where you have me is the right place. And I think we all feel like that sometimes. We all go through moments where maybe we didn't get into the school we wanted to get into or we didn't get the job that we most wanted or, or the girl or guy we were in love with. They married somewhere, someone else. And, and so now we're kind of looking around and we're single and trying to figure things out. Or maybe we had a loved one who passed away suddenly and we didn't get to say goodbye or we got let go from our job. Or, or I can think of a multitude of things that happen where all of a sudden we wake up and we wonder, God... Are you really in control? And I wonder how the disciples feel when here they are in this garden with Jesus in the darkness and they see coming towards them lots of lanterns and maybe the glistening of some tools and weapons and the shuffling of feet and they've got to be wondering what's happening in this moment. Is Jesus in control? The whole gospel of John has been moving to this direction. And, and you, you've got to wonder, is Jesus a victim? I mean, sometimes in life we feel like victims. I mean, that's, that's real. I mean, that happens to us. But Jesus is no victim. He has chosen to, gone, to go to Jerusalem where things are hostile. His followers have warned him, if you go there, you could die. He walks into danger. He's put himself into a findable public place. He just did a miracle outside of the walls of Jerusalem and Bethany. And he knew that his time was coming. He shared a meal with his disciples where he turned to Judas, one of them, and said, go and do what it is that needs to be done. Go, go do what you have set your, your mind set on. Jesus continually takes actions that lead to this moment. And as his disciples have been listening to him, Jesus has been predicting his own betrayal. He crosses the Kidron Brook, and he's in this garden, this familiar place where his disciples had been with him before. And I love that John wants you to, he starts, you're into John 18, and he wants you to see we're in a garden. Because as Christians, what we know is, you know where everything went wrong? A garden. And here John is saying, you know where everything's going to start to be made right? A garden. Here he is. This is not a Genesis garden. This is a gospel garden. This is a place that Jesus chooses intentionally. Where Adam once lost everything, Christ is going to begin to win it back here. He comes to fix what we have made wrong. What all of us have made wrong. He doesn't hide from being arrested. He knew that Judas would be there. At this point, Judas has already changed sides and, and we see that Judas has betrayed him. He's called all throughout the Gospel of John the betrayer. And here that comes to fruition. John leaves out the financial arrangements which maybe you know about or even the kiss which maybe you've heard about or the, the money that's exchanged. But here comes Judas and he's no longer with Jesus. 
And he's shown his true colors. And this is his end. And he shows up with, with kind of, there's three groups represented coming after Christ in this garden. You've got, um, you've got the, 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 the follower of Jesus who betrayed him, right? The sort of the false Christian in a sense. Then you've got the Jewish leadership who symbolized the, the Jewish people. And then you've got the, the Roman uh, the, uh, um, soldiers who symbolize all of the Gentiles. I mean, here's this picture John gives you. It's like the whole world is coming in after Jesus. And there could be like 600 soldiers coming to Jesus at this point. And you can imagine they're probably not quiet. It's hard to keep a group of 600 quiet, especially with lanterns and torches and weapons. And so here they come barreling down on Jesus. And what does John 18 verse 4 say? This is the important verse in this first section. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward. He knew it all. He had been planning it all. They're looking around going, this can't be right. And Jesus sees it and is saying, everything's going according to plan. The disciples could not have believed that this was the plan. Because the best way to have, a, 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 rule number one of having a king or a leader is they can't die. Have you ever played chess before? Right? Game is over when the king goes down. It's over. So the disciples have got to be thinking to themselves, there's only one rule, keep this guy alive, but he seems to be doing things that are perpetually leading to his inevitable death. This is not their plan, but this is his plan. I want to remind you that if you feel out of control, God isn't. Look, we walk into this room each week and the reality is we experience the highs and lows that we face. Some of you maybe just came from the worst week you've had in a long time. You've got to 2023 and you thought, this is a new year. It's going to be wonderful. And now you're like, January is almost over and it's terrible. Because we make plans. We often seek to be the author of our own story. And one of the greatest mistakes we make is believing genuinely that if we were in charge of our lives, things would go great. And I know you feel out of control. And the disciples felt out of control. Everyone's kind of afraid in this text. But Jesus isn't. And you don't need to be. Because you may be out of control, but, but Jesus isn't. He's sovereign. He has authority even in this moment. Even when everything looks like it's about to go wrong. Jesus stands there in the middle of it and says, this is how it's supposed to be. This is ultimately for the good. His sovereignty, as they barrel down on him, Jesus steps out of the shadows and he begins to show us his identity. Into the light. And Jesus declares before them, who do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. I mean, they, they, they knew who they were looking for. And I love that Jesus just takes charge of the situation, right? I mean, they're here to arrest him. And Jesus just steps out of the light and says, who are you seeking? And I'm like, oh, I mean, uh, we're here, Jesus of Nazareth. It seems like he's Jesus at the disadvantage, but here he is taking charge. And they know his name. They've probably heard him teach. They probably know about the miracles he's done. Jesus, the one from Nazareth, they knew who they were after. 
And in verse 5, Jesus answered them, I am he. Now, that word he actually isn't in the Greek text. It's in here in the Bible so that you're able to understand, like, the response. It makes sense in English. But Jesus' actual response is just the words, I am. Who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus says, I am. The words I am have a familiar ringtone all throughout the Bible. They're used as a declaration of divine identity. When Moses comes across the burning bush and he encounters with God and he says, God, who, who should I tell them sent me? And God says, tell them I am sent me. Jesus is at one point in kind of an argument in the temple courts and Jesus makes this statement that's sort of radical. He says, before Abraham was, I am. Not I was, but I am. They, they knew in that moment, they grabbed stones to, to stone him for blasphemy because here once again, Jesus is claiming that he is God. The one who's speaking is God. The, the, the Jewish people knew that he was identifying himself with the God of Israel. He's claiming that he is God in flesh. And he's used a bunch of different kinds of I am statements throughout the Gospel of John. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever's hungry would come to me and feast on me. They'll never be hungry again. I am living water. He says, I am the, I am the doorway. I am, uh, I am the resurrection. I am the life. Jesus is always using I am statements. I am the light of the world. But here Jesus is making it clear to those who are barreling down upon him, I am. If you want to be a religious person, there's lots of options. Especially living in the time and culture we live today. You can walk down Venice, um, just the Venice boardwalk, and you will, before you hit the end of it, probably be presented with at least 10 different religious options, things you can believe. Crystals, psychics, Jehovah's Witnesses. You've got lots of options. People are inherently or innately religious in the sense that they, they want to make sense of the world. And so even though people in our culture, in our day, often stand against religion, those who stand against religion kind of create another kind of religion. And religions all have some things in common. They, they seek to give us some answers to how to live in this world. Religions show up and they, they make great claims. They say, here's how to be a good person. Here's, how to, to, here's the way to get to God or the way to get to the afterlife or the way to get to glory. Or they say, here's the truth of how to understand things in the world. Or here's how you ought to live. Here's what the good life looks like. Every religion, every other religion other than Christianity is offering you some sort of statements about how to get truth, how to get life, how to get those things. But Christianity is fundamentally different because Christ arrives and he doesn't say, let me show you the way. Let me just tell you the truth. He says, let me just point to the life that is life. He instead points to himself. What makes Christian faith different is that Jesus shows up and says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. 
He, he doesn't come to say, let me show you how to get to God. He shows up and says, I am God who have come to find you. We tend to think all religions are kind of these optional things that we choose from, and they're all kind of equal, but they're all kind of different, and some are more useful than others. But ultimately, they all just teach how to be good. They're different flavors of morality. What I want you to see is that Christian faith is not a different flavor of morality. Christian faith if it is to be true, must be superior because Christian faith isn't about moral teachings. Christian faith is not how to be a good person. Now, if you're a Christian, you'll become a good person. But I want you to understand what we're preaching and proclaiming is not, here's 10 steps to be a better person. Christian faith isn't about moral teachings. It's about Christ. He's constantly pointing to himself. Not let me show you the way, not let me tell you the truth, but instead I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. And this Jesus who makes these claims from the first verse to the last verse of all of the Gospels, constantly pointing to himself and his identity, he changed the world. He's the most influential person who's ever lived. And so I think it's a strange thing to believe that Jesus is completely crazy about who he is and yet is as influential as he is. To me, that seems way more far-fetched. The reason I, I, I point this out about his identity is because to be an honest person, to be a serious person, to take Christianity seriously means that you must wrestle with what Christ claimed about himself. You can't show up here on a Sunday morning, take some notes about how to live a, a more moral life and walk away unchanged. That, that would demonstrate a lack of integrity. Jesus said, I am the true bread, the true vine. I am the good shepherd. And he said, I am he. I am. And when he said, I am, they fell to the ground. Why did they fall to the ground? Well, there's this whole thing that happens throughout the Bible, which is we, we can't be in the presence of God and not fall to the ground. Do you ever think about how fragile our own identities are? Like we, we project that we're tough, but let's be honest, we're pretty fragile. Have you ever been around someone at work who's way better than you? It's traumatizing, <laughs> right? Isn't it terrible when you're, you're at work, things are going well, and they hire someone new, and they're like fantastic at their job? It's like traumatizing for us. Have you ever been around someone who's like way better looking than you and seen yourself in a photo? Who's the first person you look at? You look at yourself, and then you kind of try to suss out how you stack up to the rest. But when you're around someone who's really good looking, I mean, it makes you feel terrible. When you're around someone more talented or better at their job or more accomplished, occasionally you'll feel pretty good about your resume, and then you'll meet someone who's very accomplished, and all of a sudden you feel small. When you're in the presence of human greatness, you feel small. How much smaller must you feel if you're in the presence of God? Jesus says, I am, and they're knocked back because they are in the presence of God himself. And yet, here he is demonstrating a kind of vulnerability 
Because even though he is sovereign, even though he is God, he will not have his life taken from him. He will lay it down. And that leads to his security. Jesus in verse 8, after saying, after asking them again, who do you seek? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. In verse 8, Jesus says, I told you I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. And this was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. That's a quotation from John 17, where in which Jesus says that all those who belong to him, he will protect, apart from the one who will betray him. And so this is this moment where they're coming down on Jesus. Now, standard, standard operating procedure is if you're going to arrest the person, you also bring with, with that person you're arresting his followers. They would, be, they would be brought along with Jesus, but Jesus defends his people. He doesn't call down for angels. He, he just tells them, who are you looking for? And they say, you, we're looking for you. And he says, you're looking for me. Then leave them alone. The good shepherd cares for his sheep. He's acting here as the good shepherd. And I want you to see that in the same way that Jesus is securing the physical safety of his disciples, it points to the safety that we have eternally in Christ. Jesus puts himself between his disciples and the enemies. He came into the world for his people. And so Jesus says, you have me, let them go. Look, I want to be clear. If you're not a Christian, please don't miss this. This is the heart of Christian faith. You have me, Jesus says, let them go. He puts himself in harm's way so that his people might be safe. I don't often cry at movies. But I find myself getting teary-eyed any time I am watching a film and you see a hero sacrifice themselves so that others might be saved. Isn't it a strange thing that when we see that, sometimes even in like a superhero movie, which are like the hardest movies for me to feel anything at, um, they're just all light and sound and noise and popcorn, right? But there's these moments where even they like, even they get to the heart of what it means to be human. When you see someone give up their life for someone else, it moves us at the core of our being. I have a bunch of movie examples that I've been meditating on this week, and then I came to the conclusion I just don't want to spoil any of them for you. In the past, I've gotten in trouble for quoting movies that are 20 years old, and then someone says, I've never seen that before. I'm like, I've, I've 20 years old felt like a good window. But okay, I just think you can imagine them. You can think about those great films you've seen where a character is, is in a position where they don't have to offer up their life, but they do to save someone else. Jesus comes that, that he might lose his life so that when we find ourselves in him, we might be saved. Our world has some weird conceptions of Judgment Day. Some people in our world don't believe in Judgment Day at all, right? Their whole philosophy on life is eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. 
They don't march for anything. They don't care about anything, right? Because their whole view is just enjoy your life and then you die. Life is short, then you die. There's no judgment day, meaning there's no real right. There's no real wrong. There's no ultimate and final end. There's no moment where in which things are finally made right. Many people in our world, they believe that. They believe there's no judgment. Most of us reject that because we just see within it something kind of broken to say that there's just no justice, there's, there's no right in the end, everything just kind of obliterates. And so some of us go, no, we definitely believe in judgment. But then if you talk to people who believe that there's some sort of judgment in the end, it seems to go something like this. Yes, there's a judgment in the end. And here's how that works. God is going to show up and he's going to take the good people and send them to the good place and the bad people and they go to the bad place. And so kind of the general idea is be good, don't be bad. That's how you avoid the judgment. That's what religion says, by the way. Examine most religions and they will give you some sort of version of judgment is coming, be a good person and you might make it. Jesus says something radically different. He says judgment is coming and judgment has come and I'll take it on myself. He took judgment on himself, me for them. You want me? Let them go. Jesus took death and the cross and the punishment that you and I deserve on that judgment day on himself so that we might be saved. Imagine if you really believed this. Imagine if you really believed that there was a point in time in the future where in which judgment would be real, but that the real judgment offered by the final judge had already been, the verdict had been rendered, and then the punishment had already been received and totally paid for by someone on your behalf so that you might have peace with God forever. Can you imagine if you actually believed that? Would you really care what people in the world thought of you? Can you imagine knowing that God's final judgment has come, that the punishment has been paid by Christ, and that now because of what Christ has done, you are right with God and at peace with God, but you also still kind of care about what Nancy thinks about you? Isn't that absurd? You would say, the judgment is in, and I know where I stand, and Christ, my punishment is real, and Christ took it and paid it all, and I am right with God through him. That's Christianity. The comfort that you long for is available now, in and through Christ. And he is able to save anyone who draws near to God through him. The security that we need is in him, me for you. All right, I'm going to close here with our, my last point, which is on destiny. Verse 10, then Peter, I love you read John, then Peter, Peter has foot and mouth disease. Then Peter, always acting before he's thinking, right? Then Peter, Peter sees what, 600 people? And Peter's like, I've got one sword. Like, I'm going to save you, Jesus. Isn't it interesting that Peter thinks this is what he's going to do? Peter's constantly doing this. Like, Peter's like, I'll take control, so Peter, Peter, Jesus is going to offer himself as a sacrifice for his Peter, people. And here comes Peter going like, no, you won't. He grabs a sword. He cuts off the ear of a guy named Malchus, who the reason his name is here is because they probably knew who this guy was. 
He was probably around as this book is being circulated. And I want you to see that Peter kind of looks noble, but Peter is trying to stop Jesus from doing what he came to do. They told Jesus, don't go to Jerusalem, don't die. Get back on the donkey. That donkey, that was great. Everyone was cheering and praising. Let's get him back on the donkey. Peter couldn't accept that this is why Jesus had come. Jesus does not panic at Peter in this moment. But he will not have his people, Peter, fighting like this is an earthly battle. This kingdom that Jesus has come to establish is not of this world. And he will not have his people pick up the sword for him. So Jesus says to Peter, put your sword away. I've come to drink the cup. Peter says, I'll save you, Jesus. It just reminds us of, I just, in my, I see my stupidity in this text. I, I just imagine that if there's no part of Jesus that the moment Peter does that, there's no part of Jesus that goes, you know what, you can have him. I'll save the rest, but you can have this guy. Just always acting before he thinks, always trying to control everything, always trying to put everything in his own hands. Jesus doesn't say that. He doesn't say, oh, Peter, you don't get it, you're out. He says, Peter, I'll drink the cup. That's what I've come to do. Look, I'm like Peter. I think you're often like Peter. I want you to see that Christ's response to Peter is, Peter, I've come to drink the cup. That's why he came. He, come, he came to take on the cup of the wrath of God. Throughout the Bible, that cup symbolizes God's wrath, God's judgment, God's anger against sin. And Jesus says, I've come to drink it all up. The man of Nazareth is the suffering servant. And he's not going to that cross as some helpless victim. No one will take his life from him. But he will drink this cup alone. Because no one else can pay this price. No one else, no one else could unlock the gate of heaven. But we believe that Jesus did. And that all who trust in him will be saved. Brothers and sisters, friends and neighbors, the rumors of grace, forgiveness, and redemption with God, they're all true because of Jesus. Let's pray. God, we, we recognize that when we feel out of control, you are still in control. And sometimes that's our only hope. Is that when we don't know what we're doing, you know what you're doing. We thank you that you are sovereign. We thank you that you took on flesh. That you, you, you sent your son Jesus. Took on flesh. Is in control. Headed towards the cross. To lay his life down. So that as we trust in him, we might live forever. We thank you that for the security we have in Christ. We thank you. That, that you were always going to drink this cup on our behalf. God, I do, I really do pray that we would know that the judgment is in and it, it's been decided. And that if we are in Christ, if we have repented of our sins and trusted in Jesus, that we can have security and peace with you now and forever. I just pray that the forever peace would invade our now. That in the face of frustration or difficulty or opposition, that we would be able to declare 
We know where we stand with God because we know what Jesus has done on our behalf. That yes, we would seek to be good people who obey you faithfully. At the same time, we would put no hope or trust in our own goodness, but we'd put it all in what Christ has accomplished. Help us to make much of Jesus and to walk in his ways. Help us to be good neighbors to those who you put around us. But more than anything else, help us to find ourselves in Christ and all the promises that come. It's in your name we pray.